world that is facing one of its biggest challenges in living memory. The coronavirus pandemic has devastating potential as it sweeps across the globe. To fight this virus and slow its spread, we've had to change almost everything about how we live our lives. In Coronavirus Examined, we're talking to experts from the University of Sheffield to explore the different ways in which coronavirus is changing our world and the way we live. I'm Alicia Shepherd, and welcome to Coronavirus Examined. Each episode, we're speaking to a different academic via the socially distanced means of video chat to ask them for their expert takes on the broad-ranging impacts of the coronavirus pandemic. Today, I'm joined by Matthew Flinders, a professor of politics from the university's Department of Politics and International Relations, who's also the founding director of the Sir Bernard Crick Centre for the Public Understanding of Politics. In the wake of the coronavirus crisis, Matt has turned his attention to the idea of crisis fatigue and what this means for our society. Matt, could you start us off by explaining what crisis fatigue is? Okay, so crisis fatigue is actually quite well known within the fields of psychology and behavioural economics. Uh, This is that human nature and human minds have only got a certain shelf life for remaining focused on something. Crisis fatigue is a simple fact that people tend to get very, very dramatic and emotional and concerned about things. And then they move on to something else or they get a bit bored. And why is it that people get bored? I think there are a a number of reasons. There's, first of all, I think human nature. um, When a crisis kicks off, it is incredibly demanding emotionally. It's sapping. It creates fear, concern. It's disruptive. And I think there's only a certain amount of time that psychologically people can really exist in that state before they almost click in and impose a sense of normality back on it. So what for some time was seen as a crisis, people just adapt to and it becomes almost a sense of a normal situation. And and I think that's maybe what will happen with coronavirus. Another issue here is that I think actually social media has a lot to do with it. People today, particularly younger generations, are simply not used to having a sustained focus on an issue. They're also not used to really focusing and absorbing lots of information. Everything is small sound bites, it's Twitter, it's turbo, it's short, it's fast, it's loud, but it's very almost thin. And I think that creates a real reception problem amongst society. And a, a key challenge for politicians and policymakers is how will they prevent crisis fatigue settling in? And after a few weeks, people not almost pushing to go back to normal and moving away from the social isolation that has been accepted for the time being. With climate change and now coronavirus, it seems as though we're living in a constant state of crisis. To what extent is that really the case here? Well, I think if there is one word that is overused in political and social discussions around the world, it's a crisis. We are almost battered daily by wave upon wave of different crises. And actually, I think what's happening is a little bit like the boy that cried wolf. Not that the current coronavirus crisis shouldn't be taken seriously as a major pandemic, but it's just that so many other challenges in life are nowadays described in the terminology of a crisis that I think the the word, the term has, has almost lost the fearful associations that it used to have. So I think there is a certain 
particularly again, certain generations have lived through real crisis through the world wars will remember what it's like. And actually, that's essentially what we're doing at the moment. We're going through almost a war-like situation without a clear enemy. And it's that lack of a tangible enemy, which is very draining. But also for generations that are younger, they have been brought up in an environment that is def almost defined by crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis. The question is only really, what's the next one? And is that sense of living from crisis to crisis down to how we're defining the term, or is that really the reality of the situation? I think there have been real uh, crises that younger people have experienced, particularly with, with, with the pandemics that have happened in the last 10 or 20 years. However, what I would say is that even the most um, relatively small elements of modern life are so commonly now dressed up as crises that it can be very hard to separate the wheat from the chaff. Again, the media's obsession with turning every molehill into a mountain can be problematic when actually a real mountain comes along that really does demand focused attention. So it's really both, isn't it? It is, actually. It's a whole supply and demand challenge. And, and it's a very, very complex situation. It's very fluid. And yet within it, something has to be done. And that's what we're seeing at the moment is that surrounding the coronavirus crisis are a number of issues around the data and the forecasting and the epidemiology. And, it, and yet somebody somewhere in the depths of Whitehall has to make really difficult decisions today that may involve the loss of life, that will definitely be criticised in the future, may incur millions, tens of millions of pounds, and yet somebody's in that hot, shit, hot seat and has to take those decisions. Which is a really difficult responsibility to bear. It's really difficult. And if you look at all the previous research on pandemics and government responses, what's really interesting is that after the event, they all generally get viewed through the lens of policy failures. Because there is a certain need to understand the context of a crisis and how difficult it is to take decisions in what is a highly irrational and emotive situation. It's far easier after the war has ended or the crisis has abated in the relative calm of normal day to life to look back and hold people to account against very clear standards and having the benefit of hindsight. But when you're in the eye of the storm, that's a very different situation. You've already touched on how younger generations play into this, but is crisis fatigue something that affects all generations and populations equally, or are some groups more affected than others? I think there will be a certain uh, demographic element to crisis fatigue, because by the whole nature of the crisis that we're facing, because certain social groups are more at risk than others, I think, therefore, the, the fear factor will suppress some sections of society. It will make them maintain an attachment to following the rules or the guidance in a way that some people who are simply not at risk and who simply might feel overwhelmed by different warnings of crises and demand uh, a more constant focus, um, they'll simply get bored, switch off and want to move back to a more normal way of life. This is the whole reason why the initial plan of the government was to not impose lockdown for as long and as long and as long as possible. 
because the government and particularly the experts were well aware that there was only a certain span that they could reasonably expect the, gov the, the public to accept lockdown. Therefore, it was better to try and save that as long as possible until they almost use that tool. In the end, that wasn't possible for a whole number of different reasons. So the government wanted to avoid a lockdown for as long as possible in order to delay crisis fatigue, is that right? Exactly. They wanted to basically ensure that because they understood that the public's ability to focus down and understand the seriousness of the issue and follow some pretty fundamental limitations on their life, that that would have a particular time span around it before the public started to push back. Therefore, they wanted to sort of almost hold and hold and hold and hold that until they were really forced to lay down that card. So they're expecting people to push back against the lockdown at some point then? Exactly. The great worry is that we are now heading towards the two, three, four weeks peak of the coronavirus crisis. What we don't want as we get into that is more and more people getting bored, fed up about being in lockdown and wanting to push the boundaries or question whether it's all necessary and starting to socialise again. Because if they do, they'll simply spread, provide the coupling and the linkages that will almost be like throwing fuel on the fire at exactly the time when the peak is hitting anyway. Now, it might be that we're all wrong. And we, it might be that we are underestimating the capacity of the public to stay focused on a major issue. And therefore, we don't need to worry about the crisis fatigue in quite the way that we are doing. It might be that the public show a much greater ability to stay focused, to lock down, to self-isolate. However, if you look at the evidence again from other pandemics, the public generally do have a fairly limited time frame before people start to um, resist and question in a way that isn't happening at the moment. But is coronavirus in its severity not enough to break crisis fatigue? Obviously, businesses have shut and our normal way of life has been put on hold. Is that not enough to ward off crisis fatigue? Well, you're absolutely right. One of the interesting things is there's no doubt that, that as a crisis, the coronavirus pandemic is a crisis. Nobody is, is over-egging the pudding here. The challenge, however, and again, there's a huge amount of research on this, is that for a lot of people who are be, being expected to self-isolate, they are not going to have any tangible experience with the crisis itself. Lots of people either won't get ill or they'll get the bug and won't even know they've had it, or it will be so mild they don't think it's any great big issue. This is a, a real paradox of crises that in many ways, to make the public focus on an issue for a sustained period you have to deal with this issue of proximity, which it has to have a day-to-day -day tangible impact on the individuals. Climate change, for example, lots of people see it as a major issue and accept that it's a crisis. But a lot of those same people are unwilling to change their day-to-day -day behavior and transport habits in order to actually do something because they don't see the tangible impact of that crisis on their day-to-day -day lives. The fear with coronavirus is we all know it's out there somewhere and it's affecting some people. But for a lot of us, it won't actually be a tangible, visible, proximate element of our day to day lives. So after a while, we'll start questioning whether this is 
all really necessary and it can it do so much harm if i travel over and see a few friends and what will start happening is the high levels of very um sensible self-isolation will start splintering and fragmenting and you're right we have powers now the police can step in but the police have been very clear that they don't want to use the powers in a very hard-edged manner and if suddenly the fields and parks and beaches start to fill up with lots of people the police aren't really going to be able to stop or, 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 or send everybody back home. So without having to experience the virus in order to understand its severity, how else can we stop people experiencing crisis fatigue? Yeah, I think there are. And I think this is, again, where the social sciences offer some really great insights to how that can happen. What the government and the scientific experts need to do is to maintain and forge a relationship with the public. And almost what's interesting, and this is happening, though it's happening in a quite um, bottom-up, ad hoc manner, is that almost what we need are more ambassadors, public figures from different worlds, not the usual suspect politicians, who are willing and able to constantly reinforce the message that self-isolation is saving lives. And that message has to be made and remade and reframed in order to keep it fresh in the minds of, of, the, of the public. But also, and what's very interesting, what's missing at the moment, is that all the behavioural science are nudging, nudging people to make the right decisions rather than telling them what to do, emphasises the role of visuals and graphics. And far more could be done by the government in using very simple visuals and graphics to explain to the public why staying at home is so important. There's a very good graphic going around which shows one person, they meet one person, and within 24 hours, the people meeting people meeting people has grown like a virus itself. And I can't remember the exact statistic, but it was one person could basically spread it to 9,000 people. If it was self-isolating, it was a handful. What the graphics and the visuals were able to do was to simplify a complex issue and bring it home to the individual in that way that I was just talking about, which is a very tangible manner. We can watch it and we can understand within your room, my room, my office, exactly what we have to do and why it matters. So using visuals and understanding the dynamics of nudging would be a really big step forward. How else is this state of crisis affecting our society? What's very interesting at the moment is society is very much in a period of confusion and short term firefighting where things are very messy and opaque. And it's hard for everybody to understand exactly what's happening and what to do. What's interesting and I think will be the long term impact of this crisis is that it has forced society to change in ways that are never going to go back to the previous normal. Things that many people thought could never happen have happened, and they've happened at a speed and also with a positive energy and commitment in ways that were unthinkable before this crisis broke. So again, there's a massive literature within political science on the role of crises as creating windows of opportunity in which you can allow big reforms to happen. If you just think about higher education and universities, the transition that occurred almost overnight from an emphasis on face-to-face -face teaching, seminars and lectures to 100% online, 
What can we as individuals do? What responsibility do we have in combating a culture of crisis? I think that's a really good question because actually what it's really getting to isn't so much about coronavirus. It's not even about crisis. It's about what responsibility do you and me and individuals have towards the society in which they live? I think for a long time now, we've had a pattern of development which has become increasingly individualized. And I think that what this crisis will do and is doing is just making people think a little bit more, not about themselves, not about their rights, but also a little bit around their community, their society and their responsibilities to be an active citizen. And if there are some silver linings of this crisis, I think that actually there has been a huge and very positive outpouring of civic capital, of a desire to help others. And one interesting question is how we might seek to build upon and maintain that civic energy once this specific crisis is over. Before we go, we'd just like to say a huge thanks to Matt for talking to us and shining some light on crisis fatigue. If you want to find out more about their research, you can follow them on Twitter at Political Spike. We'll also be including links to any relevant research or blog posts in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening, and hopefully you'll join us for our next episode, where we'll be talking to Dr Fuchsia Saroy about how working from home is impacting our lives. Coronavirus Examined is a podcast series from the University of Sheffield. It's presented by me, Alicia Shepherd, and edited and produced by Harry Clulo and Tommy Wilson. To find out more about the University of Sheffield's research around coronavirus, head to sheffield.ac.uk forward slash research forward slash coronavirus.